Hi all, this is the European VC, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this episode. My name is Andreas, and I'm joined by David, my co-host of the European VC. And remember that this is the podcast that you want to listen to if you want to get to know what's happening in the European VC industry. We love hearing from you, so do continue sending suggestions for guests and future topics. We'll be super hyped with all your support and feel honored to chat with such amazing guests on a regular basis. And don't miss out, so follow us on your preferred podcast platform or at theeuropeanvc.com. And if you're looking to raise an international round and need an introduction to international VCs investing in Europe, do reach out to us. We're here to help you. We're always trying to help wherever we can. So please don't hesitate. Today, I'm excited to welcome our guest, Nico Goulet, managing partner of Adara Ventures, a European VC firm based out of Madrid, Spain, managing over 180 million, investing in early stage deep tech companies. Adara Ventures focuses exclusively on B2B markets with complex problems to solve that build on engineering productivity and innovation. They love companies with efficient go-to-market models that are solving problems for enterprises, no matter the size, and the ambition to be global from day one. Nico, it's great to have you on the European VC. Welcome. Would you care to just start by highlighting a couple of your portfolio companies? Well, good morning, Andreas and David. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast, which uh, I think is a great initiative. Congratulations for setting it up. We're always happy to participate in the dissemination of our views and the way we think about the industry. So thank you again. To your question about a couple of our portfolio companies, as you described, we invest in companies that are trying to solve complex problems with sophisticated technology, therefore very much product companies and companies that are built around an engineering breakthrough. An example of this would be uh, AlienVault, which many of you might recognize. AlienVault was a cybersecurity company in the CM space founded in Madrid in 2008. It was eventually sold to AT&T in 2018. That was, um, at the time, the largest software sale in history for a Spanish-born company in the B2B space. And so... We're very proud to have been investors in that company, and I think it illustrates exactly what our philosophy of investment is. Companies that are building on advanced technology, in this case software around the management of cyber threats, and that have the potential to go global, uh, very efficient in their capital usage, and that uh, you know eventually relocalize where most of the time to the U.S., where the group of investors can expand with some of the large cybersecurity investors in the U.S., Lino Perkins, GTV, Intel Capital, IVP, etc. Uh, ended up joining the investor syndicate at, uh, at Ingenvolt. And, and that was a, a great ride for us. It highlighted a lot of the things that we love about our business in terms of not only the good times, but also some the challenges that these companies face and how they can learn to deal with those challenges. In fact, um, you know, I would recommend anybody listening that they look at the uh, we have a little case study on our website at our.vc and you can see that case study it will talk about the five pivots the company went through in its in its road to the exit another company that i would highlight is a company from our second fund portfolio which is a company called seed tech this is a company that's generated the fastest revenue growth ever for us there's a company that is looking at the contextual markets and operating in the in, in 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 the this is a subset of the ad tech space. The company was founded by two Googlers back in 2015. It basically had at that time revenues of maybe 400,000 a year. And this January, it had revenues of five million just in January. So you can imagine that that's quite a spectacular growth rate. It's already a bit that positive. Looking at uh, and, and completing acquisitions in in several countries in Europe, it's grown into nine different countries. 
and has really shown how you know proper execution combined with a strong vision is capable of propelling these companies really to very significant players in the European markets. One data point for CTAG is that if you look at the reach that they have through their products across Europe, they're actually number five behind Google, uh, Facebook, Teeds, Verizon, um, Yahoo, and CTAG comes fifth. So it gives you an idea of the level of success that they've achieved to be up in that group of very powerful companies in terms of their reach for the advertisers. Anyway, those are two that I would highlight. You know, we've done 36 investments to date. We obviously have a rate of write-off, which is not insignificant. We lose about half our companies, but the successes make up for those, more than make up for those. And in some cases, even those failures set the stage for entrepreneurs to learn and to come back with even better prospects and even better deals. So that is just another piece of the entrepreneurial puzzle that we embrace and love to look at as well. We should maybe disclose here to the listeners that David and I know you from having been in IE back in 2018 on the executive course on VC. And we were struggling when prepping for this interview, whether we should, on the personal side, focus on the fact that you're actually doing aerobotics <laughs> and is a very active pilot. But there's also the other side, which is why are you so involved with IE and helping disseminate knowledge, as you just said, on the VC industry? So I want to ask you to just say a bit about both, because it is both super important well i think you know aerobatics is um, flying aircraft uh, and in general the sky is my passion and it is where i find the space to concentrate and purge my mind from all the day-to-day stresses my wife made me a t-shirt which says the sky is not the limit it is my playground <laughs> and that's what i the way i like to think of my aerial activities and happy to over a drink you know talk more about what that how that works. <laughs> um, That's cool. Next time we're in, uh, around Madrid, uh, isn't there a passenger seat we can jump in maybe? There is. There is. I have a two-seater that you can jump in with and be happy to take you up and have you explore some of the things that can be done with an engine and a couple of wings. Could we do a European VC episode while flying? You could do an episode while flying. You can record and you can do. You can definitely do that. Uh, if you're up for the challenge. I think we should uh, challenge accepted here. Okay. We'll, we'll set it up. As soon as this pandemic lets us do more stuff, we can, uh, we can arrange that. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the, the key thing there is, you know, People sometimes ask me, you know, how's that related to venture capital? I'd say, well, it's related in the approach to risk. So there is obviously risk involved in aerobatics. Mm -hmm. I like to argue that not much more risk than when you drive your car down the highway. But more than whether there is risk or not is in the approach to risk. And, you know, when in aerobatics, I take a systematic and methodical approach to managing the risk that's involved, which is the same thing that we try to do in the way we approach our portfolio building and the management of our portfolio companies. And so, you know, the notion that risk in itself is bad is something that anybody that wants to be in the VC world needs to ban from their thinking. And if you want to be a VC, you have to be willing to embrace failure and look for failure because it is part of the breeding ground for the inordinate successes that are involved in VC. So... If you want to be risk averse, then it is impossible to build up a productive portfolio in VC world. And that also leads me to the second part of your question, which is, you know, why do I like doing this stuff with IE? And I also do it at INSEAD, which is my alma mater. In fact, there is an INSEAD case, which is the one that underlies the discussions that we have at IE. 
And uh, for the same reason, I, I believe that understanding risk in the context of the entrepreneurial ecosystem is very, very important. And it's important to disseminate understanding around risk so that people can evaluate and take decisions as to whether they become entrepreneurs, as to whether they build up companies, as to how they do that and how they manage the risk in a systematic and methodical way, not just thinking of entrepreneurs as, you know, daredevils that are willing to sacrifice themselves for a wild idea. No, I think uh, entrepreneurs uh, learn to live with the risk that they take and they learn to extract value from that risk. And that is where we position ourselves with respect to our own LPs and respect to the portfolio companies. One of the big outcomes of the Renaissance was the ability to quantify risk. In fact, I would recommend a book which is called Against the Gods by Peter Bernstein, which is an incredible book that reflects how the quantification of risk starting in the 17th and 16th century. It had started also before, but how the quantification of risk allowed the economy to grow because essentially it allowed and enabled debt. It also enabled insurance. It also enabled uh, the understanding and quantification of uncertain future outcomes. That concept, which is basically the quantification of risk and its understanding in a methodical and systematic way, I believe is critical. And, you know, within venture, Investing, it is so central to our whole widget or mechanism to create value for LPs. So that's why I like to try to expand this view and try to push it out to as many people as possible, including in the educational context. Yeah. Uh, Nico, on that note, I just have to butcher the scripts and go off script. <laughs> and I'm basically going to reverse the order because you just spoke about risk. So let's talk about that. And as you say, VCs operate in a very risky and volatile environment and the systematic approach is needed to deal with that. Maybe let's kick this off with asking you to explain the difference between pickers and allocators in VC and then follow on on that, you know, within that spectrum, where is the dollar and why? Okay, so I think that, you know, um, in the world of VC, you can focus on the selection process, which is basically basing your value proposition on the fact that you can identify the winners with a certain level of certainty. And so where your value is in picking a portfolio of companies where the vast majority is going to be successful. The uh, allocators are those that think or believe that while maintaining a very selective process, it is more difficult to reduce the nominal failure rate because that nominal failure rate is related more to the stage at which you invest, the industry at which you invest, and the type of approach you're taking to choosing your companies. And that the, the, the secret source, quote unquote, is more based on putting more money into the successes and less money into the failures. And that those would be the allocators. Now, everybody fits on a spectrum of this. And uh, I don't want to characterize, you know, as one or the other, because neither of those is better or worse. It depends really on how you think of your abilities as a VC and how you think about materializing the value uh, to your LPs. And I think, uh, you know, the same way in stock market, you have people that are more momentum investors, others that are short-term day traders, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Here, the, the difference between those two basically helps to understand some of the decision-making processes that VCs have and the way they structure their portfolios. So typically an allocator and, you know, Adara, we consider ourselves more of an allocator than a picker. We are very selective in our investments. We do only five out of a thousand deals that come to us, thousand relevant deals that come to us. So, you know, it's not that we don't select and it's not that we're not 
We don't invest randomly. We, we invest very selectively. But we have found that it's been impossible over the last 15 years to vary the rate of nominal rate of failure, i.e. the number of companies that fail. What we have found is that you can build processes and metrics and modeling to really help you try to move more funds into the successes and less funds into the failure. So this is the quintessential, you know, if you're, you're going to fail, then you have to take that into account, but make sure you fail fast and make sure that you stick with the winners, which sometimes is counterintuitive to the way we humans work. You know, in general, when something starts going south in life, we tend to try to stick with it to fix it. And when something's going well, we tend to try to reap the benefits quickly and try to get take take off the table the, the value quickly. What this says is the opposite, is that you know when things fail, you should get on with it. And when you're onto something that's really creating value, you should double down on it. And I think that's kind of the difference between the allocators and the pickers. And, and yes, we would we build a lot of processes into our decision making, into our analytics into the data we look at in order to be able to uh, focus on the allocation process. A couple of data points that are very important in that, about 70 to 80%, 70, more than 70% of the, of the money that we send to companies goes to companies where we are already shareholders. Because one of the key premises, if you want to be an allocator, is that you have to have opportunities to put more money into the companies. And so you need opportunities to reinvest. But you also need opportunities to stop investing, which may sound paradoxical as an investor. You're going to you try to create opportunities to not invest. And that's not a paradox. It's actually a sign of you know, making sure that you have opt-out opportunities. And that uh, happens within structuring of the deals to a variety of mechanisms in which you can start to work with your portfolio in that manner. Naturally, Nico, that when you have such a small allocation, only 30% to initial deals, initial investments, that also makes you more selective, as you also said that you are. But these days... We're seeing that the market speeds up for investments, right? Everyone expects that they can get a yes or a no in a couple of weeks, it seems. How do you go about handling this stress that there is in the market? Because everyone is trying to get into the good deal. So we tell our, everybody that comes to see us that we are, we're into slow cooking, right? We do cuisine à basse température, as the French like to say, you know. There's, there's, <laughs> you can even get tools for this, this thing that you stick in the water and it keeps it precisely at 60 degrees or 49 degrees or whatever it is. And that's a style. And, you know, we engage with the companies and those that want to engage with us in that mode do. And, you know, we, we, we find that we don't have a, a lacking of interested companies. It's true that sometimes when, when there is a lot of competitive pressure, we try to speed up the process and obviously be agile. We're not stupid about that. But we don't cut any corners in the way we process our, our deals and the way we engage with the entrepreneurs. Most of our decision process is about people. So if you go on, the, on Google and look up investment criteria for VC, you will found millions of hits. All of those lists uh, are good and they're, they're, they're real. You know, you need to have the product, you need a big market, you need a competitive advantage, blah, 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 blah. You need all of that. And the, all of those are necessary but not sufficient conditions. What we believe is that on top of all of those necessary but not sufficient conditions, you really need three things. One is that the vision is very strong of the founders. Two, that they have the capability to execute. And three, that they have the courage to face the risk that this type of venture inevitably entails. So the combination of those three is what we believe correlates best to successful companies, which are, by the way, for our successful companies, are companies which do well, obviously, but that are capable of absorbing more money going forward in the process because of our allocating focus. And those three criteria are not criteria that you can judge in a couple of days. 
you need to spend time with the entrepreneurs, you need to see them evolve, you need to go through situations with them. And so we are very reluctant to just jump into a deal with very little information. And so we probably lose some because of that, but we think that overall it works fine for us. Maybe, Nicole, you could expound a bit on, because uh, now we know that you, you have 180 million funds, 70% of that are dedicated to reserves. What does that mean for... for, for... Sorry, let me let me correct you. We have 180 under management, so the yeah. last fund is an 80 million fund. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's true. So you have 80 million in the latest fund. 70% of that is allocated to reserves. What does that mean then for your initial check size? We're doing check sizes between, you know, that's going to be about 20 companies. So the math works out to about, you know, one and a half on average. We do checks between half a million and two million on first checks. And could you expound on the rationale behind why is it 20? Why is it why is it not 10? Just because we have a lot of emerging managers listening and, and they're going through this process of deciding on the number of deals they should do and so on. So I think, first of all, you need to decide on what your strategy and vision is before. The, 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 the configuration of your portfolio is a result of that not the driver of it. You know, our strategy was to look for companies and do take meaningful stakes, look for dragons. To get dragons, you know, you need to have a sufficient diversification, but you also have to have sufficient stake in the company. So we prefer to have two companies that are dragon and the rest marginal returns than to have four half dragons or eight quarter dragons. So this focus means that we we try to take big stakes in the companies and try to grow those stakes even as we progress in time. You know, on those that are doing well, we try to apply our super prorata rights when we have them. We try to find ways to do secondaries. And, you know, when something starts playing out correctly or playing out well, we try to, to get more and more shares so that, you know, at the end of the day, we don't need unicorns to generate dragons. And if you have the fund size that we have, you can generate a dragon without even reaching unicorn status. Aidenvolt is, is a case in point. We had, I believe, 13% of the company at exit. It netted something like 60, more than 60 million for us, uh, $60 million, uh, which ended up being a dragon. So returning the whole fund. I think that that you need to combine all of these metrics together and figure out out of that will come the number of companies you want to have. So it, it's more a question of choosing between doing a lot of deals with little money and low stakes or doing lesser deals with more money and more stakes. And you need to position yourself somewhere in there. I would suggest to all emerging managers to build an Excel where they actually model this out and they model the follow-ons. Um, you need to make simplifying assumptions, of course, because you can't model the real world. <laughs> but sadly, you know, look at all these metrics and how they play out. And when you stick it in a model, you will find yourself iterating around a point as you try to, you know, put more companies in. You'll find it difficult to get the stakes you need to get the returns, depending on the multiples you're assuming. Or you will have to make assumptions about, you know, very large multiples on exit. So you have it's not consistent with the write-off rate. You know, so you have to try to build in a picture until you get a picture that looks consistent. And the key word here is consistency, because if you're willing to have inconsistent data in the model, you can model whatever you want. If you're willing to say that 60% of your companies are going to be 10x on a gross basis, then fine. But that's basically inconsistent. That's an impossible metric to achieve, or at least nobody's achieved it today. <laughs> 
<laughs> I want to double click on the dragon versus unicorn talk. So is it a company that's going to be a million or a billion dollars when it exits? Or is it going to be a company that will return the full fund? So that's what we mean when we say a dragon versus, versus a unicorn. That's correct. And you are in your fund, as I remember, Nico, you are more focused on building the dragons than chasing the unicorns that are so rare? That's correct. Because we were... That, you know, particularly if you have smaller funds, as is the case initially, to build a unicorn, let's assume you start off, you make an investment, you have 15% in that company, and you're chasing unicorns. Unicorns have a characteristic about them is that they're very hungry animals, and they eat a lot. So there's going to be a lot of rounds, a lot of dilution, and that 15% is probably going to end up somewhere in the 2 to 3%. So by the time it's a unicorn, you're a 50 million fund, you're getting 3% of that back, and you're getting 30 million. Now, if on the other hand, you're capable of building a $500 million company, but where you actually have 20% of it, you get a billion back. You may deploy more capital in it. You may, you know, so the gross multiple might be different. But at the end of the day, what's important is the returns to your LPs. And, and it's just a different strategy. Some people feel that it's, and then by the way, it also fits with your industrial strategy. If you're in the consumer space, it's a lot easier to think about unicorns. In the enterprise space, unicorns are more rare, right? or at least they were before, they're becoming less rare now. But, you know, now soon we stop talking about unicorns and we start talking about decacorns and and whatever it is. Uh, there's, there's another name in there. The, anyway, mythical creatures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah. basically, the, the reason we like to talk about dragons is that dragons, talking about dragons focuses on the return to your LPs. When you can talk about unicorns, you're only talking about the performance of the company. And this leads to a very important point, which is if you want to uh, effectively manage your portfolio, you need to start thinking about the investment metrics. And you need to think of your companies as investments, not about not as companies. So you could have a unicorn, but it could be a really bad investment. It's pretty rare that a dragon is a bad investment because it would have meant you would have put the whole fund into one company. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, mathematically, it's, almost impossible for a dragon to be a bad investment, but it's actually quite easy for a unicorn to be a not so good investment. On that note, let me so shift back to the initial topic we wanted to explore, which is Adara's investment thesis. And to quote you, you said something about fundraising being one big trust exercise. So you're actually just talking about looking at, at companies, not as in terms of, you know, their valuations and whatever's happening there and whether they're unicorns or decacorns, but looking at, at them as an investment vehicle. So I'd maybe ask you to kind of double down on what's the investment thesis behind Adara, explain to us a, a tiny bit and also how did that then serve as the basis to build that trust with your LPs that then ended up investing in the funds? Our investment thesis was originally focused on capital-efficient investing uh, related to a geographical fact, which is that in Spain, the engineers are high quality and low cost. So that was the thesis that we used. We said we could find companies built by Spanish engineers that would become global powerhouses in their relevant technology niche, exactly what Alienborg did. Alienport became the seed for AT&T cybersecurity, having started off in Spain with a tiny team of 10 people back in 2008. And that thesis is what we sold to our investors. We had some evidence that it was possible, but there were also a lot of doubts and questions. And I think, you know, what we sold to our LPs was the trust that we were going to give it our best shot and that we believed in this vision, that we had good execution capabilities, that, you know, they would not 
be able to fault our execution. They may have been able to fault the result, but not the actual execution. So, and that we, you know, were trustworthy with their money. When somebody gives you a check for a million dollars, you know, they first and foremost, what's top of their mind is, do I trust this guy or this group of people? That's the first thing that's on their mind. And we just need to recognize that. So trust, transparency are two of the key pillars that we built our fundraising on. Something in what you just spoke about got me thinking about you having just raised your fund now or the follow-up fund or what we should call it. My thinking is you have been raising both in the middle of COVID and also at a time where we're seeing more and more reports of grand masters uh, in, in in economics saying that, that we are headed towards a crash. And I can't help but think, how have you adjusted your fundraise and also the way you think about your portfolio? Do you think that, okay, we need to prepare for a crash and as such need to bolster the companies? Or, or do you think that the crash will come and we won't know when and we can plan for it? What are your thoughts on that? So just saying that the crash will come is already a plan, right? So you're already thinking that it's going to happen. And I think that, you know, we actually have lived through three crashes already. Mm -hmm. We lived through the crash in 2000, 2002. We lived through the large financial crisis. And we've gone through this, which is not really a crash. It's a, it's a you know, situation which actually is humanly more unpleasant and more unfortunate than even the first two were. The first two were only about money, and this one is actually about human lives. I think what we see is that our investment strategy and method and system that we have, which is constantly evolving and we're, we're obviously you know, not staying put on it and we try to adapt it, it's actually quite resilient. Why? Because the companies that we are building are companies that focus on creating the next wave of productivity tools for enterprises. And you know, whether there's a crash, whether there's a pandemic, whether there's a change in the situation, companies are going to need that. Uh, they're going to need to continue to leverage technology to be able to improve their productivity. They're going to need to continue to leverage the human resources that they have in more effective manners. And the way to do that is through technology. All our, you know, for the last 400 years, all our improvements in uh, the economic improvement that we've lived through has been driven by the adoption of technology, basically. Technology at different levels for individuals, for corporations, whether it's communications, whether it's travel, All of those, you know, in one form or another, have been underpinned by technology. And so the fact that challenges are sort of put in the way only make it more relevant. And it's, uh, I would use the same analogy I used with failure. You know, we need to be ready to embrace those because those are the moments when strong companies emerge. We have to look forward to the next large challenge, which is actually going to cull a lot of the companies and make sure that the fittest survive. So if you have a Darwinian approach, you more rather more welcome these situations than fear them. That's going to be unpopular with a lot of people. <laughs> we do very much believe that that's the way that you should think about it. And, and if you focus on building companies that have fundamentals that work and actually bring value rather than companies that you flip to other investors and an unknowing IPO market, uh, <laughs> then that's a different strategy. So we're just happy to hear that that's also your strategy. <laughs> Would you actually go, go on to, because I find it a bit interesting, particularly in the enterprise space, that 
this recent shift in the market, so to say, it can actually be seen almost as a precursor of a technology inflection in terms of the usage of technology in the enterprise space. So you, we hear a lot of conversations and webinars and you know articles and whatnot about remote working, but do you see this as an inflection that is also an opportunity for um, your portfolio companies? Precisely on that one, I actually might have a bit of a contrarian view. Awesome. I think traditionally technology has been about bringing people together. And now it's something facing a wave, which I would characterize as making sure that people don't get together. <laughs> the point is not to be with other people, right? I think, you know, and I see this in the way we approach our, you know, remote working. I think people want to be together. I believe that they want technology that helps you spend time with people and that, may, that improves your quality of interaction, but it allows you to spend time with people. And, you know, I would much prefer to do this interview where we could all three be in a room and, and chatting about things than to be staring at a screen, hoping that the battery doesn't die or that the Wi-Fi doesn't disconnect. And so I have to say that I am a little skeptical on the long term, on the ability of this short term trend of pushing remote working to survive the long term appetite of the human being personal contact. And and uh, Nico, are you betting on this thesis? And, and, and I think that you know technology will follow what we want right what we want to be able to do but don't you think to some extent nico that's at least how i have seen it that this has shifted the balance between whether you get your social fulfillment through your colleagues and seeing them eye to eye and then getting it through your family and neighbors and friends who you then have as your only social circle that's at least how i see it that we might have that shift where more people are more online when doing their work and then everything gets very cold and business focused. But people are cool with that because they have more time with their family and friends. When I see my kids sitting on the couch at home and together or looking at a screen and sending WhatsApps to each other sitting on the same couch, I have to wonder about you know, <laughs> and I, that you're right. part of the human interaction. Right. I think they are different interactions. In our job, we're, we're trying to gauge people Direct contact, personal contact is fundamental. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have still to raise a fund within this new mode. We did complete our fundraising after COVID and we did bring in some investors without actually physically meeting them. But by and large, all our investors, I'd say 90% of our investors know us and have spent time with us and we have a long lasting trusting relationship. When we raise fund four or whatever we do going forward, it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out because I don't believe you can build a very strong trusting relationship purely purely online. And how I mean, about I see it even in the courses at IE, for example, I see the quality of the of the interaction and you know I'm dying to get back into a face to face environment. Considering this view, how have you handled vetting entrepreneurs in this period during COVID? How have you handled making investments? So we yet have yet to make an investment where we will not have met yeah. entrepreneurs face to face so we we try to find ways to meet them at least a little bit it's a lot less than what we would like at the moment yeah we really like to spend quite a bit of time with them but we still we have yet to do that cool nico uh, i want to shift the focus now and make sure that we quickly hit the very important point that i like from your side which is that vcs have to focus on one space that they know that they're really good at and build that deep experience within that focus that's what you at least believe is what works. And would you contrast that to the many uh, uh, VCs who choose to go broad and say, we invest in anything, <laughs> regardless of sector? Again, I'm not going to make a I'm not going to qualify that, but we are focused on building strong verticals where we have experience. Uh, we believe that what we can bring to the entrepreneurs is be able to share with them experiences and be able to share 
situations, actions that were taken in given situations and the outcomes of those actions. So we don't believe we have better judgment than the entrepreneurs. We just believe that we have a broader database of stuff to look at and to bring to the table. And in order to make that relevant for the entrepreneurs, it's important to be quite focused. So, you know, if we were to sit down and have to talk with a consumer-focused entrepreneur, Sure, we can have a chat and so on and so forth, but it's very difficult for us to bring real experience to the table. Say, look, you know, I really believe you need to do this because I've seen it 10 times and five times out of the 10, this happened and three times out of the 10, this other thing happened and two times this, you know, outcome C happened. So, you know, to be able to do that, you have to have done a lot of deals. And we don't do that many deals. We've only done 38 deals in our lifetime. So we want those deals to be focused and very relevant to everybody we're talking to going forward. This doesn't mean that we won't broaden the scope in the future. And we have started to do so. Started to do so on digital health, expanding, sort of looking at the parts of digital health that are closer to software and that are more closely built on data and artificial intelligence and mechanisms to leverage the immense amounts of data present in the healthcare system. And we're starting to do that. But there again, our view is to build you know, experience that and do many of them, not just sort of try a couple and then go off to try something else. Investors that have broad scope, if they can bring in the capabilities and people with the experience, that's great. You know, so larger funds can have a broader scope because they have larger teams, they have more people involved and, you know, they can compartmentalize it and have people that are good at what they do. So I, I don't think it's a it's a no-no on being bored, but I think, you know, you can't know everything about everything as an individual. The whole of humanity knows a lot about everything, but an individual knows a little bit about humanity and about everything. <laughs> so you kind of have to focus your abilities around where you can really bring value to the entrepreneurs. And what they don't have is the experience that you have having done a lot of deals. Yeah. Uh, that's the difference. You know, we're not smarter than them. We're not better engineers. We're, we're much worse engineers than they are, <laughs> for sure, because they're hopefully the best at what they do in their space. We're, we're not even better entrepreneurs than they are. Yes, we are entrepreneurs building our fund, but, you know, they are, they're they the ones doing their, their company. What we do have that they don't have is we've just seen a lot of situations. So we're like one big library of situations for them, which they can go and pull and pull and so on and so forth. Before rounding this off, uh, Nico, and on that note, I would love for you just to uh, kind of quickly summarize. So how does Adara add value to its founders, to its portfolio companies? Because you, you summarized it in a really nice way last time I spoke, and I would love our listeners to hear it from you in that highly you know structured manner. We do this, this, and this, and we focus on doing that. And I love the way you put it. So um, I think, you know, the, usually I respond to this question by starting by what we don't do. Um, which is a longer list than what we do do. But you know, we are not the commercial arm of the company. We don't, we're not the recruiting arm. We're not your business development. We're not your uh, surrogate engineering team. And we're not your business development team. What we do do is we provide guidance on the financing track. So, you know, what should the different rounds look like? You know, what might some of the investors that you're looking at or the co-investors you're looking at, you know, feel like on the board? Uh, or as investors, you know, we have about 60 to 70 co-investment relationships with more than 600 million has gone into our company. So we, we know a lot of people and know their style of investing as, as they know ours. Uh, and we can bring that to the team and help them understand how they should think about the different steps on the fundraising track. The second point we look at is the uh, one-time strategic decisions. Like, you know, when do I be domesticated to the U.S.? If, for example, you're a Spanish um, entrepreneur or European entrepreneur thinking about the U.S. as a key market or a key fundraising market as well. Or if you're thinking about pivoting, going into a completely different business model, for example, we see many pivots so we can help try to think through. So, you know, one-time decisions, one-time strategic decisions. 
And the third is helping the entrepreneur with their own personal approach to the way the company is growing. So, you know, entrepreneurs generally have sweet spot in terms of where they're highly effective. It might be, you know, founding to 5 million, it may be 2 million to 10 million, but everybody has a sweet spot. As the company becomes more and more successful, you will want to bring in, you know, good entrepreneurs will try to bring in people that are better than them at different things. They will have to think about their own role. They'll have to think about how things are going with their co-founders and all these team issues that start appearing can sometimes be quite harrowing for the entrepreneur and quite difficult to fathom because they're also about their own progression. You know, how long should I be the CEO? Should I give up being the CEO and start being the CTO? What does that mean? Yeah. You know, how do I separate my role as a shareholder from my role as an executive? Yeah, these are all things that they need to learn and learn to deal with. And sometimes can be emotional, can be stressful for them. And we've seen a lot of that happen. We've seen many founder transitions. We've seen founders that have burnt out. We've seen founders start taking drugs. We've seen founders do, you know, wild things. And, and so we can, we think we can help them to sharing some of those experiences. This has to be the final words on this part of our interview. And now we have to shift into the quickfire round. It is both our favorite round, but it's also sad because this marks the end of the interview. Are you ready for it? Sure. How am I supposed to respond to this? Like, yes, no. <laughs> Lara, uh, you have 30 seconds for each. And if you feel super angry when I talk about equity sharing schemes, then I'll let you ramble on. But otherwise than that, then let's keep it short. The first question is, what would you personally like to change about VC in Europe? I guess what I would like to change about VC in Europe, that there would be more of us and making it more aspirational, that a lot of people would want to start their own funds. And what do you think of equity sharing schemes in VC funds to ensure better alignment among founders? I'm not sure I understand the equity sharing um, piece. So what do you mean by equity sharing? So equity sharing is when the founders, when they are adopted into the fund or when they receive an investment, they also get a share in the VC's carry, for example, so as to make them more focused on helping each other as well and, and doing good for the fund. So um, we don't do that. We've never done that. I've frankly never been faced with an entrepreneur that wanted to do that because I I think it dilutes them, right? They're better off keeping more of their direct share than having the fund. But no, you know, the, the, we are investors give us the carry because they want us to be the managers of it they don't want the carry is the payment from our lps to the managers of the portfolio it is not an alignment mechanism with the founders good perspective thank you nico for that final question is what can we expect in the future from adara and from nico Goulet? from adara you can expect us to continue growing our portfolio continue growing our team hopefully raising more funds and you know different types of vehicles also in the future Hopefully, see our name behind very successful companies in the spaces, in our predilect spaces of cybersecurity, data, digital health, DevOps components. And for me personally, uh, I would like to continue flying until my last days. <laughs> awesome, Nico. Thank you. It was really, really nice to reconnect with you. And as I've said, when I first reached out to you, I do feel like we owe you a bunch because it's partly thanks to you that we met each other, Andreas and myself. So thank you for that as well. We hope to keep in touch and to welcome you or someone from Adara back into the podcast sometime soon. I hope so too. Thank you again and congratulations for setting this all up, David and Andreas. This was our interview with Nico Goulet, Managing Partner for Dara Ventures. If you'd like to see more from Nico, follow him on LinkedIn. And on this episode, Nico has been sharing a lot of valuable resources and we'll of course make sure to put those in the episode notes so that you don't have to go out and search for it yourself. We thank you for listening to the European VC, the go-to place for insights into European VC. Visit theeuropeanvc.com to hear more from us. And if you'd like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please reach out to us. We are always there for you.